word. He is a man of God. We are lucky. We are blessed. Uh, we are favored as a church to have him as our high school pastor. Uh, and I know, I know, I know. Here's what I know. I know high school students, he loves you more than you could possibly know. Um, second person I want to recognize is Connor Johnson. Pastor Connor Johnson, right in the back right there. Fun, fun story about Connor. The first camp I ever went to with Calvary, Connor was a student. We were up at Hume Lake at a place called Wildwood up at Hume Lake. And Connor and I will always remember, summer of 2010, we were bunkmates together. Uh, and so Connor Johnson and I love this man, love his heart for the word, love his love for Jesus, his love for middle school students. Middle school students, you are blessed and highly favored of God to have this man shepherd you. Can we honor Connor Johnson? Now, as we jump into tonight, I want to tell you something I used to do. I don't really do it anymore. Um, but when I was in high school and when I was in college, I used to journal quite a bit. And I didn't become anti-journaling. I just kind of stopped after a while, and it didn't become a practice that I, I did anymore. But, but here's the cool thing about journaling. Who here keeps a journal, diary, something like that? Okay, here's the coolest thing about having that. If you're organized and if you're careful and you keep them as you go, You'll have these things for the rest of your life. And one of the most powerful things you can do is a decade later, open up and start to read through your journals and remember where you were at and remember what God was doing in your life. And so from time to time, I pick up one of these journals, and this is one of mine from the very end of college, and I start to read through these journals, start to read through the things I wrote. And every time I read through these, um, at least two things hit me that I want to talk to you about the night. The first is when I go back and I read my own journal entries, you know what I realized? I was so dramatic. Oh my goodness. Anyone else here just willing to recognize sometimes you're dramatic? I was a little dramatic. Like I was just like, I read some of this. I'm like, oh, I wrote that. Like, let me read you this. In, here, here, here's what I wrote. Here's, here's kind of an entry from April 3rd, 2010. So this is about 13 years ago. This was the very end of college, and here's what you need to know. You end middle school, you go to high school. You end high school, for the most part, people go to college. You end college, and you have no idea what happens next. Because college is wrapping up, and so if I didn't get a job, I'd probably just be like living on the street, wandering down by a river. Like, I have no idea what would happen. So I had applied for a job at a place called Calvary Community Church. And yeah, no, 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 but this is why it's not exciting. I had not yet heard back from Calvary Community Church. I was four weeks away from graduating. I was starting to get very stressed out, and here's what I wrote. I confess I have not been comfortable with how long, I'm so dramatic. <laughs> okay, listen, listen. I confess I have not been comfortable with how long it has taken for this application process to happen. <laughs> it's true, I wasn't. <laughs> here's what I said, here's what I said. 13 years ago, I'm one month away from graduation, and frankly, I'm scared. Frankly, so dramatic. Okay, but, but, but listen, listen. Shh. I'm one month away from graduation, and frankly, I'm scared. But then, here are the words that I want to read to you. And I want to spend the rest of our time together tonight convincing you that the words I'm about to read that I wrote 13 years ago are true, not only for me, but they're true for every single soul in this room. Here's what I wrote 13 years ago. I shouldn't be afraid, though. God always, always, always comes through for me. I am going to spend every ounce of energy I have tonight walking you through two stories in the book of Daniel 
and trying to convince you that what was true for me 13 years ago, when I was scared and I didn't know what was going to happen, and I didn't know where I was going to go after college, and I didn't know what was going to happen with my life, but God always, always, always comes through for me. Here's what I want you to know. The God of the universe, Yahweh, the one who is who he is, always, 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 always comes through for you. And tonight, I want to persuade you of that. No matter your circumstance, no matter what's going on, no matter what's happening in your life, here's what I want you to see, that God always comes through for you. So Daniel, chapter 2, verse 1, begins this way. It says, in the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. So remember, we are in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar is the king. The people of God are in exile. Exile is a place that is uncomfortable. It is a place that is un... We're going to see that tonight. It is a place that is uncompromising. What we're going to see here is Nebuchadnezzar has dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me and I want to know what it means. Now, you might just think this is a random dream the king has and it's just kind of a bizarre moment. But that's not what's happening here in the story. I want to be abundantly clear about something as we begin tonight. This dream did not just randomly happen for the king. The God of the universe up in heaven, who does whatever pleases him, put this dream into King Nebuchadnezzar's mind. And here's why this matters at the very beginning of the story. I think some of you happen to believe in a God that would never put a dream in anyone's mind. I think some of you have actually come to believe in a God that would never do anything in anyone's life without their permission and consent. And here's what I want you to know tonight. That is not the description of the God of the Bible. So there's two types of gods we could believe in. The first is a deist type of God. D-E-I-S-T. Deist. Here's what a deist God does. He creates the whole world, everything in it, and then he stands back, folds his arms, and just kind of watches he never does anything, he never bothers anyone, he never interrupts the flow of human history, he just kind of does his thing. And here's the tragedy. A lot of you believe in a deist kind of God. You think God just kind of sits up in heaven, folds his arms and goes, well, we'll see what happens with her life, we'll see what happens with him. But that's not the God the Bible teaches. The Bible doesn't teach of a deist God, it actually teaches a different kind of God, a theist God. T-H-E-I-S-T, theism. And the idea of theism is that God is actually actively involved in this world. He's moving and he's shaping and he's guiding human history and he's guiding your life. And for some of you, the reason you can't actually trust that God always, always, always comes through for you is because you have actually come to believe in a deist God who stands back with his arms folded and has nothing to do with your life. That's not the God of this book. That's not the God of the Bible. God is actively involved in our life. And there's going to be a dream that is told here. A dream that is in the king's mind. Here's what I want to do for you. I want to summarize verse 4 through 30 of this chapter. There's a long chunk of it. And rather than read it, let me summarize it for you. The king has a dream. And it freaks him out. He's terrified. You ever had a dream and you just wake up and you're just rattled? That's what the most powerful man in the world, King Nebuchadnezzar, has. He has a dream that terrifies him. So he calls in all the magicians, the sorcerers, the smart people, the astrologers to tell him about the dream. But then here's the trick. He doesn't say, here's my dream, now tell me what it means. He gives them two challenges. He says, you need to tell me what my dream was before I even tell you, and you need to tell me what it means. So imagine your best friend wakes up tomorrow morning and says, tell me what I dreamed about last night. You're like, how could I possibly do that? 
And he says, tell me what I dreamed about last night. That's what Nebuchadnezzar wants. He wants them to tell him what he dreamed about and then interpret it. And they go, uh, king, we can't tell you what you dreamed about. That's impossible. And he goes, totally understandable. If you can't tell me what my dream was, you're all going to die. So Nebuchadnezzar is looking at all of these people and he's going, I'm going to kill every single last one of you unless you tell me what I dreamed about and what it means. And all of them go, there's no way. We don't know what you dreamed about. And so Nebuchadnezzar goes, that's fine by me. He tells all his soldiers, start murdering them. Start with him. And one after one after one, they realize we're all about to die. The soldiers start going around and killing everyone until they get to Daniel to kill him. And they say, because no one can tell the king what he dreamed about, you have to die too. And Daniel goes, hold on. Nobody on this earth can tell the king what he dreamed about, but I trust in someone who is not of this earth. I trust in the Lord God, the God of heaven and earth, and he'll tell me what the dream was. And sure enough, God tells him. And Daniel tells the king what the dream is. And then he goes on to interpret the dream for him. And what we're going to pick up here in the story is Daniel telling the king in verse 31. So if you're in your Bibles right now, jump to verse 31 of chapter 2. This is what Daniel tells the king. Verse 31, your majesty looked, and there stood before him a large statue. Now look up at me right now. When you read through this passage, you're going to hear a lot of words, a lot of ideas. It can get very confusing. But here's what I want you to know. Daniel says, in your dream, King Nebuchadnezzar, you saw a statue. Let me show you just an image of what this statue might have looked like. Now, here's the statue. And I want you to see, we're going to leave this up here as I read this. I want you to see what the statue looked like. Here's what it says. An enormous, dazzling statue. Awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of gold. You see the head made of gold there. Then it says the arms and chest were made of silver. You'll see that on the screen. The belly and thigh are made of bronze, a different kind of metal. And verse 33, the legs are of iron. Its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. And while you were watching, a rock was cut out, not by human hands. And it struck the statue on the feet of iron and clay and smashed them. So in other words, here's the dream. He, he sees this statue. And then a rock just comes out of nowhere. Think like an asteroid, a meteorite, just comes in and destroys the statue. And then it says this. The wind, it broke into pieces, became like chaff on the threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept it away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. And now let me interpret it for you. So in other words, Daniel goes, I'll tell you exactly what you dreamed about. You dreamed about a statue that looks kind of like this. And a huge rock comes and blows up the statue. And then the rock becomes a mountain that takes over the whole world. And Nebuchadnezzar's stunned. He goes, that's exactly what I dreamed about. And then Daniel says, let me interpret it for you. And Nebuchadnezzar says, I'm all in. You tell me what it means. Verse 37, your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. And in your hands he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the fields and the heavens of the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them. You are the head of gold. In other words, this statue with the head of gold, what's the most valuable part? It's the gold. It's the top. And Nebuchadnezzar, that's you. And Nebuchadnezzar's like, that's kind of awesome. I'm the head of gold on this statue. And then here's what it says. Verse 39. After you, another kingdom will arise, inferior to yours. Nebuchadnezzar's going, you're darn right, it's inferior to mine. Next, a third kingdom, one made of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things into pieces, so it will crush and break all others. 
And just as you saw, the feet and the toes were partially baked and partially of clay and iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it and some of the iron mixed with clay. And the toes will be partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be strong partly and brittle partly. And as you saw the iron mixed with clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. Now, you hear this and you go, this is so bizarre, I don't even know what we're talking about here. But let me just walk you through it. If you want to take notes, you can. This is really interesting. Daniel looks at Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and says, you are the golden head. But then he says, there's another kingdom that's going to come right after you. It's not going to be quite as grand as your kingdom, but it is going to take over Babylon. And you know what we know in history? This isn't even a religious claim or a Bible claim or a pastor claim. This is just world history. If you study world history, the Babylonian Empire was ruling the entire known world. And then after the Babylonian Empire fell, suddenly there was a new kingdom. And that kingdom, the one made of silver here, is the Persian kingdom. It is the Medes and the Persian, the Medo-Persian Empire. The Persian kingdom comes next. And then, if you know your history, the Persian Empire dominates the known world until another empire comes onto the scene. And another empire rises up, destroys the Persians, and they take over the known world. Does anyone know what that empire is? Not Rome. Greece. Greece. That is the empire of Greece. And then, immediately after Greece, another empire rises up and takes over the whole known world. And you know what that empire is? It's Rome. Rome. And then you know what happens to Rome? Rome divides. It becomes a divided empire. You know what's so wild to me? 600 years before Jesus, this prophecy is made and it happened exactly as Daniel said it. God knows exactly what's going to happen in human history. And he gives a prophecy to Nebuchadnezzar and says, you're going to reign, then the Greeks, or or then the Persians, then the Greeks, then the Romans, then that's going to fall apart. God knows every single thing that's going to happen in human history. So why is it that you don't think God knows everything that's going to happen in your life? Why is it that you can't trust that God knows every single thing that's going on? He knows where he's leading you. He knows what he's doing. This statue is just a picture of how God looks down at the great empires of the world and goes, I know exactly when it's going to end. Can I just be bold? Can I tell you exactly what this means too? God looks at the most powerful nation on earth right now, the United States of America, and he knows exactly when it's going to end. He knows. God's like already in charge of history. He sees everything. He knows everything. He's not ever thrown off. There's never been a single thing that's happened in human history where God goes, wow, I did not see that coming. Every single thing God knows and every single empire is just like a flash in the pan. It's just like a second to God. He looks over all of history and he knows. The reason I can have so much confidence in God is because God already knows my future. And here's the crazy thing. He's already there. So as I step into the future, God's already waiting for me there. And the same thing is true for you. You know why you can always, always, always trust him? Because whatever happens next, he's already there. He's already figured it out. Verse 44 says this. He says, in those times, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. There's the nation of Babylon, the empire of Babylon. Then you've got the Medo-Persian empire. Then you've got the Greek empire. Then you've got the Roman Empire. And notice what Daniel says here. Don't miss this. Daniel says during the Roman Empire, during that final empire, God is going to set up another kind of kingdom that cannot be taken away. It cannot perish. It will never go away. It's always going to reign forever and ever and ever. Amen. And isn't it wild that Jesus doesn't come during the Greek Empire? He doesn't come during the Persian Empire. He comes during the Roman Empire. 
Because that's exactly what God planned. He said during that Roman Empire, during that time of earth where the Romans are ruling the entire world, there's going to be another kingdom. That kingdom has a king, and that king's name is Jesus. Jesus came into this world to set up a different kind of kingdom, the kingdom of God that cannot be shaken, cannot be stirred, cannot be rocked, and cannot be removed. What he does is he sets up this kingdom through his death and through his resurrection and ascension into heaven. He is seated, ruling and reigning at the right hand of the throne of God in heaven, ruling over this kingdom throughout the entire earth. And for 2,000 years, that kingdom has not been rattled. 600 years, you go from Babylon to Persia to Greece to Rome. 2,000 years, the kingdom of God has been growing and flourishing all throughout the earth. Again, this is God's plan. God's great plan is that he is going to create this kingdom that is eventually going to rule and reign over all the earth, that the kingdom will be where the king is exalted, and that Jesus will reign over all things. This is God's plan in this world. God's plan is to bring down every wicked, horrible, terrible thing in this world to show that Jesus is king, Jesus is reigning, and Jesus is glorious. But here's what I want you to see. It says here in verse 44, at that time the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor its people will be left to another. And here's what you know. You know that that kingdom is a synonym for the hope we've been talking about all week here. That hope for us is not in the things of this world. It's not in the American dream. It's not in how much money or fame or power or success you have. Your hope is ultimately in one thing, and that one thing is what? It is heaven. It's in heaven. Your hope is in heaven. And when I say heaven, I don't mean the place where your soul floats away and you play a harp for eternity. What do I mean? I mean three things. It is the return of the king. It is the resurrection of your body. It is the restoration of all things. That's our hope. Our hope is in heaven. And so here's the question I want to try to answer tonight. If Jesus hasn't yet returned and our bodies haven't been raised and he hasn't made all things new, then heaven hasn't come yet. And if heaven hasn't come yet, how do we live as faithful followers of Jesus in a world that isn't perfect, in a world that is painful? Because you know what I know? I know that some of your lives are really difficult. I know that for some of you, home is a really miserable place. I know that for some of you, your parents split up a long time ago, and they said it would be best for you and the family, and it's not best for you and the family. I know that some of you are walking through the sickness or illness or death of a close family member. I know that some of you have gone through the trauma or the heartbreak of a breakup or of someone betraying you or abusing you or harming you. I know that some of you have gone through a life that is so painful, so difficult, so overwhelming, so deeply catastrophic that you don't even have the words to say it right now. And so here's the question I want to try to ask tonight. How in the world do you trust Yahweh? How in the world do you trust Jesus between this moment now where you are suffering and that moment where heaven comes? Because once heaven comes, it's all going to be better. But how do you trust him in the midst of it? And that's what I want to spend the rest of our time answering tonight. If you have suffered, if you've gone through pain, if you know what it's like to lose deeply or hurt profoundly, tonight's message is for you. If your life has been perfect and nothing's ever gone wrong and you're just walking on air and everything's wonderful and everything's easy and it's never hard, then you could just kind of lean back for tonight. But if perhaps your life has some pain in it, if your life has some difficulty in it, tonight I want you to see this story I'm about to read in Daniel chapter 3. And I want you to know this story is for you to learn that you can trust a God who will always, always, 
always come through for you. Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, and he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So King Nebuchadnezzar has a vision of a statue, and the statue has a head of gold and then a bunch of other materials, and then he wakes up the next morning and goes, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to set up a statue that's going to be entirely made of gold, and it's going to be a statue of me. It's going to be 90 feet tall. When it talks about these cubits, 90 feet. Think nine-story high building. That's how high he sets up, taller than some of the tall trees here. He sets up this massive statue, and then here's the idea. The idea is that he is going to set up the statue to show how glorious he is now and forevermore. Verse 2. Then he summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image of Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and people of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down in worship before the image of gold King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down in worship will be immediately thrown into the blazing furnace. So here's the setup. Imagine someone walks in here today and says, hey, listen, everyone, we've just taken over this camp. We've set up a 90-foot-tall statue over there, and if you don't go bow down on your face and worship our gold statue, we will shoot you on the spot. We will execute you. We will kill you right now. This is the moment that happens for Daniel and for his friends. And here's the question I want to answer. This entire week, I've been making a claim. And that claim is that our God is in heaven, and he does whatever he pleases, meaning God is in charge. He's actively moving things around in the world. He's not a deist God who sits back and just kind of goes, whatever. He's actually a God who is moving and shaping human history. He's implanting dreams into Nebuchadnezzar's mind. He's changing the hearts of royal officials. He's doing all of this. And so here's the question I want to ask. If God can change everyone's mind, why didn't he stop this? If God can actually stop this thing where they have to bow down to a statue, which is wicked and evil and awful, why didn't God stop it? Maybe here's a better question. If God is sovereign, if God's in charge of all things, if God can do whatever he wants, why didn't he stop the thing in my life? Why did he let that happen to my parents? Why did he let it happen to me? Why did I have to go through that season? Why did I have to deal with that pain? If God's really loving and really sovereign, why do you have to do this? And tonight... Tonight, I want to wrestle with that question. I want to look at the God of the Bible. I don't want to let God off the hook and say, nah, God had nothing to do with it. He just stood back with his arms crossed and just let everything happen. I want to proclaim to you tonight that the sovereignty of God is the answer to the question of why you went through what you went through. And if you're looking at me going, Brian, I don't understand how God can be good and sovereign and let that happen. If God's in charge, why did that have to happen? Why do things like this keep happening? And I want to wrestle with that question tonight by reminding you of something. That you do not need to understand the sovereignty of God in order for it to be true. You do not need to understand the sovereignty of God in order for it to work perfectly in your life. Let me give you this example. Some of you spend two, three, four, five, six hours every day of your life, not here at camp because we took them away, but on these devices. Now, I want to do a question of the room. Can anyone in this room explain to me how cell phones work? 
You got, a, you got an answer? What's the answer? Say again, say again. Right, right. Okay. That is like the best answer actually I've ever gotten. But, 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 but. Here's what I know. It, shh, even that answer, which was actually the best answer I've ever gotten when I've asked this question. Shh, shh. Eyes right here, eyes right here. The real truth is this. We kind of get that there's like technology in there. There's a motherboard. There's CPU. There's things, little things. Like we charge it. We kind of understand there's towers that send out signals. But we really actually, for the amount of time we spend on this thing, you and I have no clue how this thing works. And yet there has never been a moment in your life where you're like, I don't understand cell phone technology, so I'm not using this. That's not what you do. You... You don't understand your cell phone, but it works anyway. You don't need to understand it fully in order to use it completely. And I want you to know the same thing is true about God's sovereignty. You do not have to understand God's sovereignty completely in order to trust it fully. You can trust God's sovereignty even if you don't get it, even if you have questions, even if you have doubts, even if you have moments where you go, I don't get why God is doing this. Part of what it means to trust God is to say, God, I don't understand your ways fully, and yet I trust you completely. Because you know why that's a good news? You know why this is the best news in the world that you don't understand God completely? Because if you understood God completely, let me put it this way. If you understand how someone else thinks completely, it means you're just about as intelligent as they are, right? Like if you're like, I totally understand that person's mind and everything they think, you're just about as intelligent as they are. And here's my question. Does anyone in here want to worship a God and serve a God and trust a God who is just about as intelligent as a 14-year-old boy. No, sorry, no offense. I was a 14-year-old boy once, but there's no chance that I would want to trust that kind of God. Why? I want to trust a God who's smarter than I am. Shh. I want to trust a God whose ways are higher than my ways, whose thoughts are not my thoughts. I want to trust a God who operates on a whole different level than I do. And that's the God of the Bible. So what happens here? God allows this government to set up this massive statue that must be worshipped, and he allows people to be threatened with their lives. It goes on this way in verse 7. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the flute, and the horn, and the lyre, and the zither, and the harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and all the people fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some of the astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship before the image of gold. And whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into the blazing furnace. But there are some Jews who you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I've set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, pipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the image I have made. Very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. Then, here's the question. Circle, underline this in verse 15 here. Then, what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? It's actually a really good question. 
If you're not going to trust in me and you're not going to trust in God, what God is going to save you? And it's a good question. Because listen, some of you trust God. You don't fully understand him, but you trust him. But then there's others of you who arrogantly think, if I don't understand God, I'm not trusting him. If I don't agree with all his ways, I'm not going to believe in him. There are some of you who want to try to do this life on your own, do this thing on your own. There's some of you who think you don't need God, you've got it. And here's the question. What God is going to rescue you from this world? Who's going to do it? If it's not Yahweh, the God of heaven and earth, if it's not Jesus, his one and only son sent into this world, who's going to rescue you? Who do you think has this thing? Are you going to rescue you? Are you the one who's going to rescue you? If you're honest about your life, you'll know this. No one has hurt you or disappointed you more than you have hurt you or disappointed you. And so the question is this. If it's not Yahweh, the God of heaven and earth, who do you got? Who else do you have to turn to? That's the question asked them in verse 16. says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you on this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we save is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. I love this defiance. I love that they're about to be thrown into a fire. Again, thrown into a fire is so foreign for you. There is a gun locked and loaded to the back of their heads and their brains are about to be blown out. And you know what they're going? I don't need to defend myself. God can save me. But even if he doesn't, I'm not bowing my knee to your idol. I'm sticking with my God. I'm staying faithful to him. That was the moment of that video where you all started singing, let the king of my heart be the wind inside my sails. In that moment of defiance, these three young Jewish boys, 17-year-olds, not much older than most of you, look at the most powerful man in the world and go, kill us or don't, it's okay. And you know why they have that kind of confidence? Because their hope isn't in the things of this world. And you know what's so cool about this? Remember what I said yesterday. The point of this story is not that you would live the same life Daniel lived. It's that you would trust the same God Daniel trusted. And if those young men can have the kind of confidence that says, kill me, don't kill me, do whatever you want, my hope is in Jesus. You can have that same kind of confidence. Because once your confidence is not in the things of this world, in wealth or money or power or romance or anything else, once your hope is actually in the God of the Bible, once your hope is in heaven, the return of the king, the resurrection of the body, the restoration of all things, it doesn't matter how anyone threatens you. Like if someone walks into this place and says, renounce your faith or you die, you know what you get to say? You can kill me, but Jesus is coming back. He's going to raise me up again, so you might as well not. That's the kind of defiance you can have. How do you threaten someone who knows they're going to get up from the grave anyway? You can't. How do you put fear into someone who knows that God is going to turn everything around and bring it forward for them anyway? You don't. That's the confidence you can have. You can have the same confidence these young Jewish boys had where they look to God and say, you know what, whatever happens to me in this world, whether I'm rejected or mocked or belittled or left out, whether I'm thrown in prison or fired from my job or killed for my faith, it's all good. And it's not all good because that's easy. That's not easy. It's difficult and it's painful and it's hard. But our hope is not in the easy and the comfort of this life. Our hope is in heaven. And our hope is that whatever happens to me, God's going to raise me up on that last day. So you want you to see how it goes in verse 19. It says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual. Totally unnecessary. But just so you know, when you're angry and mad, you do totally unnecessary, illogical things. That wasn't part of the sermon, just for free. All right, moving on. 
He heats it up seven times usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them in the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes and trousers and turbans and clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace was so hot that the men, for, for, uh, that the flames killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these men, firmly tied them, fell to their knees in the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked the advisors, Weren't there three men who were tied up and thrown into the fire? And they said, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like the son of the gods. And King Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out here. Verse 26, so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. Now here's what I want you to know. If the moral of the story was every time you're in trouble, God's going to get you out of it and make sure everything's all good, I would be a liar and so would be the Bible. If the moral of this story was every time something goes wrong in your life, God will fix it immediately, then you don't actually have a God you can trust because that's not been the case in your life. The point of this story is not every time you're in trouble, God will just fix it and make everything right in your life and you'll never suffer. No, the ultimate story here is that they still suffer. They come out of this fire and you know where they're still living? In Babylon, in exile, they're out of the fire, almost like out of the frying pan into the fire, right? They're into something worse. They're still living in Babylon. So God is not here to just fix all of your problems. God is here to encounter you in the midst of them. Like I want you to notice something so powerful in this story. God does not show up in this story until the moment they are in the fire. Like I want you to notice that. It says that there's three of them thrown into the fire, and then it says there's another who looks like the sons of the gods. Now, there's two different positions on it. Some people say it's an angel who is with them in the fire. And then other people say, no, 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 I think this was actually Jesus before he was made human flesh on earth with them in the fire. And here's what my opinion is. I have no idea. I don't. One of the principles I go with when I read the Bible is I don't want to shout where the Bible whispers. And so when the Bible doesn't tell me clearly, I'm just going to go, I don't know whether it was an angel or whether it was Jesus, but here's what I do know. The presence of God was with them in the fire, and here's the most important thing for you to write down. The presence of God is most real to me in the fire. Some of us think the presence of God or the closeness of God is most near to us in the moments where everything's easy and everything's great and nothing's going wrong, but it's the exact opposite. Talk to any mature man or woman of God, and they will tell you that the times in their life they have suffered the most. They've had the most doubt, the most insecurity, the most pain, the most heartache, the most trauma. It is in those moments that they've experienced the power and the presence of God. Like, I want you to know in my own life that I was a fan of God when I was in the familiar. When life was familiar and easy, I was a big fan of God. Loved worship, agreed with the Bible, loved going to church, being a part of all of it. I was a fan of God in the familiar, but hear me on this tonight. I became a friend of God in the fire. Like in the moments of my life where I've suffered the most, been through the most doubt, the most pain, in the moments of my life where my family was falling apart 10 years ago, in the moments of my life where my brother and I became estranged, in the moments of my life I wasn't sure about my life, my future wasn't sure about my faith, wasn't sure about anything, those were the moments where God met me in power. See, some of you have become convinced that suffering in your life is evidence that God's not near you, and I want you to know it's the exact opposite. It's the exact opposite, that God is nearest to you in the moments where you are suffering most. That's what the story shows us, that God is a friend with them in the fire in the midst of it. And then here's what it says in verse 27. 
It says the satraps, prefects, governors, royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair on their head singed. The robes were not scorched, and they had no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into a pile of rubble for no other God can save in this way. And then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the province of Babylon. So here's how the story ends up. Nebuchadnezzar, the one who said you have to worship my statue, goes, get rid of the statue. Everyone has to worship the God Yahweh, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And in fact, he gets so intense about it, he goes, if they don't worship, kill them and burn their house to the ground, which is like not a thing we promote, okay? But that's what he does in his passion. He's like, this is what we got to do. And then he promotes them to a big promotion in the kingdom. And then here's what's wild. The entire kingdom of Babylon now hears about the goodness and the mercy and the grace and the kindness and the presence of Yahweh, of the God of the Bible, like, think about this for a second. There's this amazing end to the story. But don't you see how this story went through this, like, really painful process? They hear about this law, and then they know they can't obey it, and they don't obey it. And so some people rat them out because they want them dead, and they try to kill them because they're living in an unfriendly place. They get arrested. They get brought before the king. They get thrown literally into a fire so that they will burn to death. They go through this whole process, and then God shows a beautiful, beautiful ending to the story. And like sometimes I want to wonder, why didn't God just bring about the good ending to the story? Why did they have to go through this whole painful process? Why didn't God just show the final picture? Why didn't God just change everyone's heart and mind and just say, hey, uh, everyone believe in me. Why didn't he do this? And I'm going to give you an answer to that question. Why did God make Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego go through the painful process? And the answer we find in Psalm chapter 115 is these words. It is this. Psalm 115, we're going to put it on the screen, that our God, do we have it? We don't have it. Our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever pleases him. That's the reason. Why did they have to go through this whole painful process rather than God just snapping his fingers and making everything better? Why? Because our God is in heaven, and that's what he wanted to do. Now, if that's true for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that is true for every single soul in this room. That God is in heaven, and he is doing exactly what he wants and exactly what he knows to be right in your life. And that is true even if you cannot comprehend what God is up to. Let me put it to you this way. Two years ago, 2021, my in-laws, so my wife's parents, my wife's parents gave a gift to my wife and my children. They said, why don't you come with us on this vacation we're doing to Hawaii? And when your in-laws invite you to Hawaii, you say yes. So I say, yes, I would love to go to Hawaii. And so we get on a plane and we go to Hawaii. But here's how the story went. For me, it was we went on a plane. We went to a wonderful resort in Hawaii. It was an amazing thing. We had an awesome time. We flew back. Wonderful trip. But I always thought about that trip from the perspective of my three-year-old daughter. My, my three-year-old Grace at the time is three years old. And here's how the trip went from her perspective. 
We woke her up one morning, very early in the morning, and it was early, and she didn't know what was going on. And we said, instead of your normal morning routine, we're actually going to put you in the car. And so we put Grace in the car, and she didn't get to do her normal things. She had to get in the car really early in the morning. And then we started driving down to Los Angeles International Airport, and we were driving through the worst part of the entire known universe. That's the 101-405 interchange, where the traffic is just gnarly. It's terrible. It's awful. It's the worst place God has ever made. It is a cursed place. And then we're driving down to the airport, and she's starting to get antsy going, why are we in traffic and where are we going and what are we doing? And then we get to the airport and what happens at the airport? She has to go through security. And all these people are like asking questions and looking at her and it's uncomfortable and it's tense that she gets through security. And then we go and we sit at the gate and we sit in these uncomfortable seats and she doesn't want to be there and she doesn't want to be doing this. She doesn't know what's going on. My daughter doesn't want to be doing this. She wants to be sitting at home watching Doc McStuffins. That's what she wants to be doing, okay? But it gets worse. My daughter gets on a plane. And to you, a plane is kind of fun and normal, but to her, she's not sure what's going on. And then we start to roll and we start to take off. And you know this and I know this. When the air pressure changes, your ears start to hurt. But she's three and she has no idea. So now she's flying in the air. She doesn't have Doc McStuffins. She doesn't have the snacks she likes. She's been up early. She's been sitting in traffic. She's flying through the air. She's exhausted. She's tired. She's overwhelmed. She doesn't know why we're doing this. She's miserable. She sobs most of the flight. It's a terrible experience because she has no idea what's going on. From the moment she woke up this morning, she is going through this painful process of getting in the car early in the morning, going through uncomfortable things, going through security, sitting in uncomfortable chairs, being tired and hungry and overwhelmed and sad because her little three-year-old brain cannot possibly understand what's going on. She see, is going through the painful process, but here's what she doesn't know. What she doesn't know is we're not dragging her through this painful process because we hate her. We're dragging her through this process because we love her. And she knows the painful process, but let me show you the final picture of when we arrived in Hawaii at the hotel. This was the moment. Painful process, final picture. Some of you are in the painful process right now. Life has been hard and family is hard and relationships are hard and school is hard and you've experienced pain and betrayal and all sorts of gnarly things throughout your life. You are going through a painful process. You are going through this painful, awful, miserable time and you're going, God, what could you possibly be doing with this? And I just wonder if anyone would know tonight that the God of the universe has a final picture for you. And it is more beautiful than you could possibly imagine. He is not bringing you through this painful process because he hates you. He is bringing you through this painful process because he loves you. And he wants something so much better than your brain could possibly comprehend or imagine. Why can we trust that God always, always, always comes through for us? Because whatever painful process you're in, there is a final picture that God is painting that is better than anything you could imagine. So what we're going to do right now is this. Our band is going to make their way forward. And we're going to sing one final song tonight. And as we sing that final song, this is an invitation. Shh. No, no, shh. Right now, right now. Eyes right here. Here's what I've learned. I have learned that there are two responses to the sovereignty of God. One is to shake your fist at heaven and say, God, if you're sovereign, why did this happen? God, if you're sovereign, why are you letting me go through this? God, I would never do things that way. God, I would never want this to be this way. God, I don't like this. You can be rageful and shake your fist at heaven. That's one option you have tonight. 
And if that's where you want to be and that's where you honestly are, then I want you to express that. I want you to share that. I want you to say that out loud. I'm mad at God. I'm angry for what he made me go through. I don't have any trust in him whatsoever. But here's the alternative option. The other option for you tonight is simply this. That rather than raging and shaking your fist at heaven, that you would fall down to your knees in worship and trust that your Father in heaven would never bring you through this painful process unless he had a beautiful final picture he was painting in your life. The invitation right now in this moment as we sing is for you to humble yourself before a sovereign God who loves you more than you could possibly imagine. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to sing, and here's a direct instruction. You are to stay right where you are. You are not to come up forward. That's not what we're doing right now. You have three options in this moment, three biblical postures of worship that you can have. One, if you want to stand, you can stand. You can raise your hands in the air, and you can stand before a holy God and say, here I am. If you want to sit, you can sit. There's no shame in sitting during worship. Sometimes the most powerful moments of worship I have are when I sit and I bury my face in my hands and I recognize that God is in this place. Your third option is that you can worship through this final song on your knees. You can get down on your knees and humble yourself before a holy God and say, God, you are holy. I worship you. I don't understand what's going on in my life or why it's going on in my life, but I know you would never lead me there unless you were doing something beautiful beyond anything I could comprehend. So here's the invitation for you tonight, to stay right where you are and to worship a holy God in this place, a God who is present and who is near, who is guiding you through this painful process, not because he hates you, but because he loves you. The invitation for all of you right now is to turn your eyes toward heaven and trust in the God who is who he is. Let me pray for you. Father in heaven, I just recognize that some of these young men and women have gone through pain that I couldn't possibly imagine. Life is hard. Emotions are huge. The things that have gone on in their life feel so unfair. And so God, I ask in this moment that your Holy Spirit would meet them in power. I don't just ask that they believe things in their mind. I ask that their heart would be overwhelmed by an encounter with the Holy Spirit in this room. I ask that Jesus would meet them in power and show them that he believes and he trusts in a God who is a holy father in heaven. So God, we trust you and we ask you to meet us in power in this place. We pray this in the holy, sovereign, good name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. Pastor Brian said you can stand.